0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy
1: this Hub Dialogue. Hello Hub Podcast listeners, I'm Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub and host of Hub Dialogues. Today, we're bringing you a past episode from September 15th with New York Times columnist Ross Douthit about his must-read book, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. In the dialogue, Ross and I discussed his experience on the edge of medical science, as well as his views on overcoming decadence, the future of conservative populism, and what it's like to be a conservative writer at the New York Times. The next voice you'll hear is mine, in conversation with Ross Devitt. Ross, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book, which marks its one-year publication date later next month. Thanks so much, Sean. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. You've said at various times that your first dream was to be a novelist. This book, which is a personal memoir of sorts, Reads much more as a story or a narrative than your previous ones. What was the writing process like, and how did it differ from your past books?
2: yeah, well that's I think that's a fair description. This is a book about um the personal experience of having a chronic illness uh, and it covers about five or six years of my life, starting in two thousand and fifteen when my wife and I were moving from Washington, D.C. up to um, the lovely countryside of Connecticut in New England um, and where I ended up getting terribly sick. And our beautiful countryside experience turned into something a little bit more like a Stephen King novel. Um, and so it does sort of both deliberately and inevitably have a little bit of a kind of horror novel Vibe. um I, I sort of aimed for that <laughs> in the writing process because that was sort of what the experience of of the illness was like. Um, but the the writing process, you know the the one interesting thing about this, of course, is that I you know I write full time for a living. I write two newspaper columns a week. I tweet, I write longer essays. I write other books. Um, and so I, but I spent a long period of being really, really quite sick, you know, sort of deeply debilitated by this illness and not writing about it at all. Um, in part because at first I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Um, but then I think because I didn't feel like it made any sense to write about something like this sort of while you were in the midst of the worst of it. Um, I felt like I needed to, get at least somewhat better in order to have any of the distance on the experience that you would need to write about. And also, Lyme disease itself is an incredibly controversial illness. There's a long-running debate about whether the chronic form of the disease actually even exists or whether it's you know somehow all in people's head or somewhere in between the two. Um, and so just for the purposes of entering into that debate, I wanted to be able to say you know, not only that I was sick, but that I had figured out enough about the disease in order to actually get somewhat better. Uh, and so it took about five or six years for me to reach a point where I could sort of clear those bars and and do the writing. Um, and then but then the writing itself, I think precisely because I hadn't sort of touched it for so long in my professional career was pretty I don't want to say it was easy, but at the very least, it was cathartic. There was sort of a rush. uh, You know, I I wrote this book much more quickly than I've written my other books. I wrote sort of the outline for the book in about, you know, like three days. I think, you know, produced like 20,000 words in three days. Um, So there was a sense of sort of having this story that I had been, you know, as a professional writer sort of keeping inside that I was finally allowing to spill out.
1: Let me pick up a point you raise about the controversy surrounding chronic Lyme disease. Assuming most listeners don't know a lot about the disease, help us understand, why did the mainstream, why did mainstream medicine rather deny your existence and even accuse you of being crazy? So Lyme disease is an illness carried by ticks. um, And there is a sort of
2: normal progression for the disease where you get bit by the tick. And then if you're infected, within a couple of weeks, you get a kind of bullseye rash around the tick bite. And then you usually get a fever. And that's the point where ideally you get diagnosed. And if you get diagnosed, you take four weeks of antibiotics and then ideally you feel better and go on with your life. Um, and that Sort of normal pattern of the disease describes some substantial percentage of cases, somewhere between sixty-five and eighty-five percent of cases. Let's say I'm I'm, I'm estimating, right? Um, but then there's a range of people who, for various reasons, uh, they don't get the bullseye rash. Uh, ticks, as you may have heard, are extremely tiny. It's very easy to get bitten by a tick without realizing it. Um, there are a lot of people who don't get diagnosed for a very long time, um, and then the blood tests for Lyme disease are not um, not perfectly accurate, to put it mildly. They miss some range of 25 to 40% of cases, and then Lyme disease is just, like a lot of chronic illnesses, a really weird disease, uh, and I think in the age of... Um, COVID and long COVID and sort of the weird aftermaths that people have had from coronavirus infections, there's more understanding of this, that you can get a disease that sort of infects you initially, and then has just really strange systemic consequences lasting for months or years beyond that. And Lyme is like that. you know, you can get symptoms in any part of your body. You can get symptoms that uh, that resemble other diseases. You know, in my case, I had chest pain that would be diagnosed as um, you know, phantom heart attacks. I had digestive problems, I had musculoskeletal pain. So it imitates a lot of different diseases. And you can sort of shuttle, as I did for a little while, from one specialist to another, getting an endoscopy, you know, a look at your stomach one day, a heart test the next day, something in your groin the day after that. Um, So it really takes someone who, you know, has a certain kind of experience with the weirdness of the disease sometimes to put a lot of these signs together and actually give you a diagnosis. Um, And then if you're In one of these sort of long-term cases, as I ended up being, there's just no certain treatment protocol. Uh, Some people get better by just taking antibiotics for an extra month. Some people take antibiotics for years and years. Some people try, obviously, much stranger things than, than that in order to get better. And I did both things. I took antibiotics for many years, multiple antibiotics over a long period of time. And I also did a lot of experiments on the fringes of medicine. And so when you when you add all of that up, the weirdness of the disease, the difficulty of diagnosis, the fact that lots of people get better with this very basic treatment, I think it's at least understandable why a lot of doctors look askance at Patients who claim to have chronic Lyme and say, well, you know, this is probably psychosomatic or it's probably some other illness. Um, that's, that's sort of, you know, that's my attempt to be understanding. The part of me that actually went through this, you know, has this incredible fury about sort of medical indifference to a disease that really is life destroying for a lot of people. Um, but again, that's, you know, one of the reasons to write after you've come up from it a bit is to, you know, to try and figure out and understand why the medical system would sort of fail patients as, you know, frankly, it failed me for a certain period of time.
1: As you say, Ross, as your symptoms persisted, uh, the book outlines the various steps that you took to put your medical well-being in your own hands. Um, This included a number of conventional and unconventional medical treatments, perhaps most notably a sound machine that at a particular frequency is supposed to target a virus similar to an opera singer breaking glass. You observe in the book that your family's unique religious journey as a child opened you up to the possibility of the weird or the unconventional. Help me and our listeners understand this point. What's the connection here?
2: Well, so I grew up in, you know, what was in certain ways a very normal, seeming liberal, upper middle class family. My parents went to Ivy League schools. My father was a lawyer. Um, but at a certain point in my childhood, we, um, well, one, my mother had her own, some, some of her own chronic health problems, uh, that, you know, opened us up to, um, let's say sort of, uh, organic and whole foods type foods and things like that long before any of that was a, was a mass market industry. Um, so I, I had some experience sort of on the, on those kind of fringes back as a kid. Uh, but then we also sort of fell into the world of Pentecostalism and charismatic Christianity for a certain period of time when I was a kid. Um, so I always had this sort of, this kind of double existence where during the week I went to a, you know, normal, liberal, secular, private school, and then on the weekend sometimes I would watch my parents speak in tongues. Um, and so that that, you know, That has, in certain ways, always made me a fairly open-minded person. Um, And so from, you know, given that, uh, open-minded about a range of things that might exist in the world without being immediately accessible to establishment opinion. Um, But I should say that I also sort of prided myself on the kind of health front before this happened to me in not being weird. I didn't, you know, as you know, for the first 35 years of my life, I, I happily left tofu and brown rice behind. Once, (laughs) once I left, left home, I ate a completely normal diet. I, you know, I never, I gave my kids all their vaccinations. I never went to any sort of weird holistic practitioners or anything like that. Um, So in that sense, this was sort of, this was a shock to my own carefully constructed identity as a normal, a normal person,
1: right? That, that's a good segue, Ross, to my next question. Um, one of the more interesting insights from the book is your self-analysis of your own faith. While you've been critical of the well-being movement and the prosperity gospel, including in a 2012 book, you discovered that, that at some level, you subscribe to some of these underlying ideas in your own life can you just talk a bit about that and how this experience caused you to confront some of your assumptions about religion and faith?
2: Sure. So formally, uh, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic. I try to be, you know, a, a reasonably Orthodox Roman Catholic. Um, and I, you know, at, a, at an abstract theoretical level, as you said, I've written very critically about a kind the kind of, you know, feel-good spirituality that per- pervades, I think, especially a lot of American religion. Um, these strong ideas, both in Christian and sort of in the landscape of sort of Oprah Winfrey-type spirituality that, you know, God wants good things to happen to you, and you just have to pray right or have your mind in the right place or visualize the things that you need, and good things will happen. Um Yeah. So, you know, sort of at an intellectual level, I'm I'm against those ideas. Right. Um, And in favor of a religious perspective that, you know, takes the reality of suffering more seriously, the inevitability of suffering more seriously. um, And that assumes that there is sort of wisdom and transcendence to be found in something other than just living out the American dream. Um, But before I got sick, uh, you know, you know my my parents are divorced you know there have been various you know various challenges in my life but i didn't have any sort of direct profound intense experience certainly of physical suffering um in 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 the course of my life and i had had a really good run, um, personally and professionally, where, you know, the the sort of plans that I had drawn up for myself of what I wanted to do with my life, who I wanted to marry, whether we were going to have kids, and then finally, where we were going to live, right? We had this, you know, idea of getting out and living this, living this idyllic life out in the country, all of that had seemed to work out. And so at an intuitive level, whatever my intellectual commitments, I really did sort of believe that this was how life worked, that if you, you know, had some combination of, you know, good old fashioned American work ethic, and, you know, keeping your life reasonably synchronized with God's intentions, that you could just sort of go from, um, you know, the right college to the right job to professional success, to marital happiness, to your, your dream house in the country. And things would just keep, keep working out. It was like a sort of Joel Osteen book come to life. Um, and you know, all, all of that, that, that intuition that I carried with me, um, was, you know, it, it came, it came to grief pretty quickly. Um, but it took, it took the actual experience of suffering to do away, to do away with that intuition. I don't want to say you know, you don't want to say that it's gone entirely. Right, as you get better, you inevitably fall back into the sense that okay, if I make the right choices, good things will happen. Right, that that perspective never completely goes away. Um, but at least now I have some firsthand experience of its profound limitations.
1: The book makes some comparisons between Lyme's disease and COVID nineteen. But one idea, Ross, that stuck with me is your observation that that in these two cases, the establishment and the cranks are on opposite sides of the debate. What what do you mean? How have these two cases played out both similarly and differently?
2: Well, there's a basic similarity, right, where, you know, I think people get accustomed to the idea that, you know, we have this sort of core understanding of disease and we have sort of certain and established ways of treating disease. And that, you know, disease shouldn't diseases shouldn't be political, they shouldn't be sort of publicly contested. Um, And for different reasons, both Lyme as a chronic, difficult to understand condition that sort of crept up on people, and COVID as a completely novel passive pathogen that sort of bursts on the world, uh, are inevitably zones of contestation, debate, uncertainty, authoritative pronouncements that then have to be walked back, conspiracy theories about laboratory origins that might actually be true, right? Like there's a, there's a whole range of ways in which, you know, both of them are just examples of how it takes a long time to get to certain scientific knowledge about about anything. There is no sort of final Sort of final state of science in which all questions are answered. And you should expect controversy and uncertainty. And you should expect in situations where people don't know what they're doing, a lot of experimentation, a lot of blind alleys and false starts, and a lot of, a lot of paranoia about, um, establishments that, you know, are often doing their best, but are going to take a long time to really get, to really get a handle. On the disease, so those are those are sort of the clear overlaps. The you know the flip side, or the way the way in which they um, flip their narratives, I guess you could say, right, is that in the case of COVID, you have the establishment, after some sort of initial doubts, coming around to the position that this is a disease that you need to take very very seriously and take maximal precautions against, and then the critics and outsiders and sometimes the cranks. Would be the ones who were more likely to say no. The establishment is over. You know, this is this is all overblown. Um, you know, they're over overestimating it's the disease's severity, overestimating how many people are dying of it, uh, all of that kind of thing. And then with with Lyme, it's it's somewhat reversed, and the establishment is saying chronic Lyme. Isn't a real thing. Maybe it's not a real thing. You shouldn't have to worry about it. And the the outsiders and the cranks are saying, "But wait, look at all these. Look at all these horribly sick people. You know, how do you how do you explain them?" So there is there is sort of a, you know, that that kind of difference and divergence. But some of it is contingent, right? For a few months at the outs, or a month or so at the outset of COVID, the people taking it seriously were the cranks reading, you know, reports from Wuhan on message boards on the internet. And it was the establishment saying, oh, this will probably resolve itself. We shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't freak out, right? So one of the lessons of all these debates is there's no sort of inevitable establishment versus outsider dynamic with different diseases. um, Those dynamics can take different forms.
1: It leads to a question about trust in our lead institutions. You wrote in a recent column that inconsistent instruction from public health voices over the past few years driven at least in part by ideological preferences, are undermining trust, including your own. You conclude the column by saying, quote, I can never trust any anything these people say again. Ross, as someone in an elite institution with progressive predispositions, what's the incentive structure that's causing these organizations to preference ideological affirmation over protecting their own credibility and trust? Are they misreading their self-interest or are they actually reading it correctly? And if so, what does that say? Well, I think there are, two, there are two things going on, right? One
2: is that there is a strong desire in institutions to effectively shore up and defend their own credibility against the fragmentating, if that's, <laughs> if that's a phrase, influence of the Internet, right? So the, the, the Internet and everything associated with it has clearly changed the dynamics of public debate. In the Western world, you have more voices, more fringe voices that attract larger and larger audiences, and sort of institutions that that sort of depend on or imagine themselves depending on a certain kind of authority um, for their influence, therefore become invested in the idea that you need to defend that authority at all costs, right? even to the point of embracing potentially censorship on the internet right so this is this is where you get into the the endless debates that we've had about you know what should twitter and facebook do about misinformation um you know what should they do about anti-vaccine arguments what should they do about um you know at the lab, people debating the lab leak hypothesis and so there's sort of yeah i, I think there's a a fear of the power of the fringe, the power of conspiracy theories, the power of bad actors that's leading well-meaning institutions that see themselves as defending scientific consensus and established wisdom to um, to, to essentially double down on their own authority, right? I think you see this with sort of the persona of Anthony Fauci, right? The, the, the temptation to say, if you criticize me you're criticizing science right like that the desire to say that comes out of a sense that science has become more embattled and needs a more vigorous and authoritative defense so that's that's one thing that's going on at the same time within these inst- many of these institutions um knowledge producing and disseminating institutions universities media institutions and so on there has been you know clearly a certain partial or complete ideological transformation over the last 10 or 15 years certainly accelerated by the Trump era um, with new ideological norms you know no one can agree on what to call these norms people use terms like wokeness social justice um, and so on down the list but everybody knows that these new norms exist um, and their are norms that sort of push these institutions towards uh, away from neutrality and towards moral engagement and towards the sense that you have a set of, when you intervene in public, if you're a public health professional, you have to think not just about sort of the science qua science, but also the political implications of your scientific statements, and whether, you know, by saying something, even if you think it's true, you happen to be marginalizing a disadvantaged group or contributing to sort of racist structures or anything like that, um, you need to be aware of it, and it should color how you uh, engage with the world, right? And these are two very different tendencies, right? A desire for elite institutions to be sort of morally engaged political actors and, an, and a desire for elite institutions to be sort of neutral defen- defender defenders of authoritative knowledge against partisan and politicized actors. But where they converge, you get a dynamic of, let's say, public health authorities dressing in the language of science political arguments, right? So when the George Floyd protests broke out and there was tremendous pressure for public health authorities who had just been telling people not to go to church you know not to hold funerals not to do all of these kind of normal human actions the the pressure on them was to come up with a scientific explanation for why these protests were okay and so they defaulted to this you know this sort of implausible language of you know well racism is a public health challenge like covid itself and therefore Um, They're actually defending public health by protesting and so on. Uh, You know, these, these arguments, they couldn't just say, I think this cause is more important than the risk of the disease. They had to sort of dress that political argument in scientific language. And that convergence, to go back to where your question started, I think that convergence for anyone who, doesn't share the ideological presuppositions, it just hollows out scientific authority uh, in ways that I think have only worsened over the course of the pandemic. The, the example I cited in the column was how public health authorities have talked about monkeypox out of their you know, desire not to marginalize or in some way mistreat the gay community. They've ended up sort of evading and avoiding frank talk about how the disease is actually transmitted. And sort of dressed it all up in sort of you know highly ideological language, um, and it just it just destroys da- it damages and ultimately destroys uh, their credibility as spokesman for uh, neutral medical knowledge. I think. You're one
0: click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: In your previous book, The Decadent Society, which I, I strongly recommend to listeners, you make the case in a way for greater change and progress in our economy, culture, and even politics. Yet, as a political and theological conservative, you subscribe to a set of commitments that, broadly speaking, stand athwart progress. How, Ross, do you reconcile these two ideas? Is progress ultimately a crucial precondition for the durability of traditional ideas and in institutions? And as a conservative, how do you distinguish between good or harmful progress?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that over, over the course of my professional career, um, I have become more persuaded that the Western world, the developed world, suffers from stagnation and a lack of dynamism, and that there's more danger in that than there is in the moral risks associated with social change or technological progress. I think both carry risks, right? If you're living in a time of rapid technological and social change... The, you know, the, the whole point of a conservative predisposition is to look at those rapid changes and try and judge them against unchanging moral standards, you know, to say, to say to people, well, you can't just invoke the inevitability of progress in order to justify doing something that is ultimately going to be destructive and wicked, right? That's, that's, I, I think that that's a tremendously important, um, a tremendously important purpose that any kind of conservatism, s- but uh, serves um, in in a changing world and a changing society. Uh, but in a society that is as ours is, I think, sort of aging, stagnant, st- stuck in repetitive loops of. Arguments, you know, the same cultural arguments circling back on each other, the same religious arguments circling back on each other, as growth slows down and fewer people have children, and society uh, gets, you know, sort of drearier, <laughs> drearier, and more decadent. To use the to use the title of my book, um, I think that someone, the conservative, who's interested in preserving ancient and traditional human goods, forms of human flourishing, has to be invested in some kind of dynamism, some kind of openness to risk and novelty and change. And I think if you look at, you know, the history, the history of the Western world, any kind of conservatism has sort of succeeded in preserving goods by being not just sort of change resistant, but also change adaptive. Um, the, you know, the conservatism of the 20th century looks different from the conservatism of the 19th century. And this is, this is particularly true, I think, for religion, right? That, you know, if you look at periods of religious revival, Christian revival in, in the Western world, They often coincide with periods of significant technological or socioeconomic change. Um, You know, the, the 19th, the Victorian era in Great Britain. Um, you know, 1940s and 1950s America, the last sort of high tide of the Christian churches. These were not sort of stagnant, (laughs) stagnant eras by any stretch of the imagination. They were dynamic and future oriented and, um, you know, dominated by substantial technological change. And traditional religion thrived in those eras by, on the one hand, offering something That was maybe more necessary to people in a time of change than it had been before, but also in adapting itself successfully to those changes, merging, merging um, the traditional and and the modern. You know, there's a reason that, you know, we use a term like Renaissance, right, to describe some new era of cultural creativity, but Renaissance means rebirth, right? It means, the you know, the, every Renaissance reaches back into the past to claim something that is useful for the future. And I think that's sort of the place that a lot of cultural conservatives and traditionalists should be in today. They should see themselves as, you know, not as sort of change resistant, but as working towards cultural changes that bring that reach into the past to bring greater life and greater dynamism to the future.
1: That's a great answer, Ross. Um, It's a tension that I grapple with personally. And so it's great to get um, your insights. I I just have a few more questions for you. I'm grateful uh, for the generosity of your time. Let me turn to another of your books. You and our mutual friend, Rehan Salam, wrote a prescient book in 2008, which observed changes in the Republican Party's voting coalition and argued for a more working-class policy agenda to better reflect its interests and needs. Your calls went unheeded, and the short story is the party eventually got Donald Trump. What did you see that others didn't, and why were Republican politicians so resistant to a different policy orthodoxy?
2: Well, so the argument in the book was basically that the American Republican Party, and this extends, I think, to right-of-center parties all over the developed world, um, was drawing increasing support from lower middle class and working class voters, uh, for reasons connected to cultural issues, um, but also connected generally to this sort of transfer, this sort of class based transformation in the West towards a society dominated by, uh, a, a sort of meritocratic based class structure, um, where the, the sort of the new elite of Western societies um, were sort of plucked plucked up and forged into a class unto themselves, a class that at the time, this has changed somewhat arguably, but at the time were big beneficiaries from big beneficiaries of globalization and changes associated with a globalized economy. Um and were sort of well suited at least to some extent for a kind of cultural liberalism as the providing the, the excuse me the presiding the presiding spirit of their of their social order, but then that this new dynamic was not working out as well for a lot of more working class voters were not doing as well economically were not reaping the same benefits and were who were suffering socially from the effects you know what i saw then and now frankly as sort of the cultural effects of um sort of social liberalization the decline of religion the decline of marriage the decline of a lot of a lot of institutions um social and familial in the western world and the argument in the book was basically that these voters were moving rightward Uh, but that the traditional conservative parties didn't have a real economic agenda that was well-suited to their interests and needs and that was capable of sort of building a sturdier foundation beneath middle and working class populations so that social structures, family structures, religious structures could sort of be built on top of that economic foundation. And so that was, we were calling for in effect, a more sort of working class friendly conservative economic policies of the kind that, since then, subsequently, lots and lots of conservative politicians in Europe and America have claimed to favor. Uh, Donald Trump being only the most only the most prominent example. the The challenge is that there isn't a clear sort of organized. Base within the conservative coalition to push for those kinds of policies. There are a lot of voters who vote for conservative parties who are sort of open to, well, let's say, open to economic policies that go beyond just tax cuts and deregulation, which is sort of the have been the default right of center political prescription. Um, but there aren't really strong interest groups that push for them, right? You know, Mm -hmm. unions were the traditional interest group that made that kind of push. Mm -hmm. Unions, have, especially in the United States, been in steady decline and have never found a comfortable home on the right of center. Churches and religious organizations conceivably could make that kind of push, but they have been weakened substantially and are internally divided. Um, And so you have a A situation on the political right where you have kind of mass support for a mix of economic distribution, reduced immigration, um, tariffs and protectionism to protect industries and jobs. That's that's sort of there as kind of an inchoate political force that figures like Donald Trump can can tap into. Um, But there isn't a, it doesn't sort of take a really strong organized form, or produce a lot of conservative elites who are intensely interested in its ideas, and so you'll get sort of these surges where you know Boris Johnson will take power in the UK and say, "All right, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna have a a plan to revitalize the you know revitalize the north of England or something," um, but who's actually pushing for that plan? Plenty of voters might sort of support it notionally. But in practice, the people making policy for the Tories, like the people making policies for Republicans in the United States, are mostly responsive to their donor base. Their donor base is uh, still disproportionately wealthy, and so economic policy is still made more for the donors than for the voters. Um, I think that's at least one story of why this sort of populist conservatism, working class conservatism, keep sort of almost taking shape, but then not actually translating into policy. Um, with the other, you know, the other realities being one that, you know, a kind of libertarianism is just a really powerful force in American right wing politics, always has been, always will be. And it places some kind of limits on any kind of economic populism. Um, and then also, it's just really hard to get populist economics Right. Uh, you know, you can say, okay, you know, there, there's this or that failure of the neoliberal world order. Um, but this to link back to the prior question you asked me, right? You can't just have a politics of, you know, redistribution to rebuild the working class because you actually need growth and dynamism as well, right? If there was a simple solution that delivered economic dynamism and, you know, a sort of robust, economically prosperous working class, someone would have found it, and you don't see it across the Western world because it's actually hard to figure out what that synthesis should be.
1: I would just say in parentheses, Ross, um, the, one of the things that pandemic has, has um, caused for me as well with regards to this question is the need to confront basic questions about state capacity. So even if, even if one is inclined to a more conservative populist economic agenda, there, there are outstanding questions about the government's ability to deliver on say industrial policy
2: right no there's lots of there's lots of ways in which the you know the standard libertarian critique of government action still obtains and has power even if you think we need the government to do more things right even if you look at you know if you look at say the hollowing out of industrial capacity in north america and outsourcing to china and so on and you say okay this is this ended up being a bad thing or it ended up having greater costs than we expected. And we need to reverse it. There's still big questions about whether you can actually successfully reverse it or whether you just end up, you know, building up some Potemkin industries and wasting a lot of money and not actually doing the thing you set out to do. Uh,
1: On the issue of class, you've written uh, powerfully about the diversion experience, particularly during the pandemic, between what you've termed the laptop class and the working class. We're now seeing this manifest over the former's resistance to returning to the office and the rise of so-called quiet quitting. Maybe I'll just ask a general question and let you take it where you want. How should we think about this growing divide? And what do you think are its political economy consequences? I mean, in, in part, we just, we
2: see the post-pandemic era through a glass darkly. Like, it's really hard to get a full handle even on exactly what's happening and how temporary versus permanent some changes are, right? So, yeah, to, a, a couple things seem to be happening at once. If you look around, like, American cities right now, you can, you can see some kind of transition to part-time um, remote work as a key feature of uh, upper-class meritocratic life, right? now is that is that enduring? Is that does that last another five years? Do you have a situation where companies look at what's happening in two years and say, Okay, the pandemic really is over now. And, you know, for reasons of productivity and collegiality, we need to get everyone back in the office. I'm i just not sure, you know, I, I think if you would were to bet, you would say that COVID accelerated a trend towards remote work. Um, that was happening very, very slowly and that we're going to be at a new equilibrium where more people expect to be able to work from home twice a week. But I don't think you can know for sure. Um, But clearly that has a bunch of potential consequences. It has consequences for hollowing out urban downtowns because fewer people are going to work in them. It has some positive consequences maybe for revitalizing, you know, revitalizing communities outside these more metropolises because more people can spend more time at home and live further out. Maybe it has positive consequences for the birth rate because those people are more likely to have kids because they aren't commuting into work or crammed into small apartments. But there's a lot of stories you can spin out and we don't know exactly how far that trend is going to go. And then similarly, as sort of the other end of the economic spectrum, we don't know why there, we, we don't, I would say we don't know for sure why, for instance, when I go to Maine in the summer right now, you see lots and lots of restaurants that are only open three days a week because they can't get people to work there anymore, right? Like, um, even at higher wages, wages have gone up, and yet lots and lots of service industries are still struggling, struggling to find work. Now, is that a consequence of reduced immigration? Um, you know, you talk to people running restaurants in Maine who say, yeah, I used to get some Russian Russian exchange students to work for me and we're not, you know, we're not getting them anymore. Right. Like that's a that's an effect of the pandemic, but also changing geopolitics. Is it, you know, this sort of more people, even though they're not getting unemployment or COVID era money anymore, just being sort of permanently disconnected from the workforce and not even imagining themselves getting back in men in particular um is it you know is there some to to connect to the conversation about chronic illness right covid has clearly created more cases of chronic illness does that have some effect on on employment are there more people not working because they're you know sort of persistently sick I, anyway i'm i'm rambling here but hopefully in the ramble you can see this basic uncertainty of this sort of post pandemic but not fully post pandemic landscape where we just don't know how long COVID-created trends are
1: going to go on. I just have one final question for you, Ross, and it's something I've wanted to put to you for for some time. As a conservative columnist at the New York Times, you're writing for a large audience composed of people who mostly disagree with you. That presumably comes with some trade-offs, including the form of argumentation that you you may adopt, for instance. Now, I should say I I tremendously respect your approach, but I wonder if you ever think about if the trade-offs are worth it. I note, for instance, in a podcast with Ezra Klein that you've observed that the past few years have affected your own politics, but there are limits to talking about how your perspective has changed. How do you in your unique role assess the compromises that come with trying to persuade a mostly critical audience? Are they worth it? And is it something you think about often?
2: The question is one I think about every time I sit down to write a column. So I think it's fair to say I think about it often. Um I think that the trade-offs are absolutely worth it in the sense that, you know, as a writer engaged in politics, you're trying to, the the opportunity to write for people who disagree with you is the opportunity that one should want, right? Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't deceive myself that I'm radically changing anybody's mind, Um but the chance to even change someone's mind a little i think is um is a really valuable opportunity and not that many writers have it and i'm lucky to have it so that's that's what i tell myself <laughs> most of the time um i suppose one one caveat obviously is that you know we're living through an era where american conservatism is a total mess um and you know, my my position as a conservative writer who writes for the Times means that I'm not really even trying to have that much influence over actual existing American conservatism. Um, you know, I, I obviously would like to have some influence. I do write columns with conservative audiences in mind, um, but that's you know, the trade off you're describing does mean that I'm trading potential influence with right wing and Republican readers in order to write for the audience that I have. So I guess you could say I can, you know, you can tell a story where there's a different career that, you know, that I, that I have, where I'm more influential as a conservative writing for conservatives. And this has some healthy effect on a conservatism that desperately needs to be restored to health. But, uh, you know, I think one of the big lessons of the whole Donald Trump phenomenon is that no conservative writer, had the kind of influence over American conservatism and Republican voters that a lot of people imagined that they had because had any had conservative writer conservative writers you know they didn't all oppose Trump, but you know whether it was National Review or George will or you know any any subset of conservative writers you wanted to pick, most people opposed Trump, most Republican and conservative voters ignored them, and I think the lesson there is that you know. You, sh- you just shouldn't overstate the influence of writers. And that, I guess, provides some comfort for me. You know, if I if I imagine that alternate world where I was writing more for conservatives, I should assume as a default that I wouldn't have had that much influence anyway. Uh,
1: that's a great answer. And, and this has been a great conversation. The book is The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery, Rostov, Thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David
1: Matta. Thanks for listening.